Welcome to the Sherburn Podcast. This episode comes from Sherburn Castle and was intended to mark the reopening of the house and grounds after the winter. The castle usually reopens at Easter, but this year the necessary precautions introduced to try and stem the spread of the COVID-19 virus mean the house will not be open to the public until further notice. A decision whether the gardens will open for people to be able to walk through the landscape designed by Capability Brown will be taken later, following further advice from the government. The house holds over 400 years of history and it'll still be here when the virus has been defeated. It's a hodgepodge. It's uh, a complete model of furniture and artefacts. It's always moving forward. Well, I suppose archivists do get a bit sort of hardened to that, but there are things that have made my hair stand on end, yes. I've been very, very privileged. It's undergoing surgery at the moment. Its movements come out and come apart. Sort of, we call it kitchen table horology. We've got over 400 years of collections. Each family member has added something. So we've got furniture, ints and mayhew to Ikea is what I say. <laughs> There's always oohs and ahs as they enter the solarium when the table's all laid up with the, the silver and the mice and china and the um, candelabra. So you get a lot of oohs and ahs there and a lot of oohs and ahs looking at the views out of the windows. Of course things are natural but it's all contrived. It is a conceal and reveal garden. You don't see it all at once. That's the whole point. It's the ooh and the art. We're showing off our work, you know, what we, we're capable of, of doing. To, we want the visitors to come and to see what we do, you know. It's not just for us. You, you get a, a lot of buzz from seeing the visitors and hearing their compliments of how great the garden looks. So, yeah, it's good to have the visitors. The castle's been open to the public every year since 1969. Inside the castle, furniture is being polished, windows cleaned, upholstery restored, stopped clocks are being repaired. All the work that's usually done to prepare for the arrival of thousands of visitors over the next eight months continues, despite the uncertainty caused by the COVID-19 virus. The castle has been owned by the Digby family since 1617. I'm here to meet Mariah Wingfield Digby. It's a water rally, um, who was a favourite um, and key player in the Elizabethan court in the Tudor period, um, acquired the old castle from Elizabeth I. And he wanted to make it into the very latest comfortable and trendy home for his family. And he failed. It was a Norman castle. It was costing far too much. So he turned his attention across what was a little cascade to um, this hunting lodge and he called in his friend's architect from Hatfield House, um, Simon Basil, and he turned this into an Elizabethan house. It's a tower house, it was light and airy within and had all the latest mod cons. Following Elizabeth's death, Raleigh was implicated in a plot against the first Stuart King, James I. He was held in the Tower of London and forced to surrender his property to the Crown. Archivist Anne Smith looks after the treasure trove of documents held at the castle. One of the most important things is the will of Sir Walter Raleigh, which he made in 1597, but was never proved because he was um, convicted of treason and all his possessions were forfeit. And so the will was never proved, it was never brought into action. And so it remained here in the archives to be discovered. 
um, not by me, but, but by somebody else who was looking through the archives. And I mean, it's a great treasure. Um, and we've also got various other documents relating to Sir Walter. Uh, his um, deed of surrender. He was in the Tower of London and the King's lawyers wanted to make sure that they had the full title to his property. And so they forced him to sign this deed of surrender. And there's his signature on the bottom in 1614, which must have been a very bitter moment for him in prison in the Tower. And Sir Walter left behind more than just documents. We've got his pipe that he smoked on the scaffold. That's really cool. Um, that was given to him by the um, Native Americans. Um, we've got his chair that he had in the Tower of London. And throughout the house, he was very keen to put his mark on everything. And we've got his um, sign, which was a buck, his lozenge of his coat of arms is still in the ceilings. Right now, nobody is really sure if anyone will be gazing up at them, but everyone here is carrying on regardless. We're charging ahead, getting all the rooms back to pristine condition, because during the winter we deep clean everything. Curtains come down, they get hoovered. Um, all the brass gets polished. Um, all the windows gets cleaned. All the carpets get beaten or carpet cleaned if they're modern. Um, all the furniture gets properly polished with beeswax. Everything has a good going over and we have a huge tick list. Things like cleaning behind radiators gets done once a year and that's on the list. Everything gets serviced um, and basically it's once a year deep spring clean. So we have an amazing Sue, who's our housekeeper, who quietly plugs her way around the castle. Susan Barham is the housekeeper at Sherburne Castle, as she has been for most of this century. It's nice to have a, you know, the diff, you know, the year divided in two. But I, in a, I think I prefer it when when we're open. It's lovely to see people enjoying it and taking an interest, and you know, um, in a way, I do prefer it when we're open. Which yes. bit of the house do they like most? You, you, you must um, I would say the solarium um, and also the green drawing room because they both have triple aspect windows with fantastic views, especially upstairs in the green drawing room. Um, but different people find enjoy different things. You know, they're interested in different things. Some people are interested in furniture. Some people are interested in paintings. Some people are just different, uh, interested in the architecture. So different people get different things out of it. Do you eavesdrop? Do you hear what they say? Um, n not a lot, actually, because I tend to work ahead of them. So oh. when they're in, I'm sort of moving along. But, um, yes, there's always oohs and ahs as they enter the solarium when the table's all laid up with the, the silver and the mice and china and the um, candelabra. So you get a lot of oohs and ahs there, and a lot of oohs and ahs at looking at the views out of the windows. And those views of an undulating landscape of grass and trees stretching into the distance and the lake are, of course, the work of Lancelot Brown, Capability Brown. In the archives are his designs for the gardens and, says archivist Anne Smith, many more personal details of the gardener's time at Sherburne can be found in the game books, the records of a day's shooting party. Oh, well, you see, one side of the book page is what they, the bag. The other side is a sort of social diary. Um, who came to stay, where they went, 
and when Mr Brown came and when the snow was deep and Mr Brown couldn't get to London on, in his coach so he went on horseback through the snowdrifts and sent a word from Salisbury to say that the roads were terrible <laughs> no, but it didn't stop him he was he was a force to be reckoned with Miss Brown. I think Kay Billy Brown was a, a great friend of the family as well we were part of his journey to great fame and fortune we sent him on his way mm. we um, championed him which is we're quite proud of. And were his plans accepted as they were or did they were they amended did they get thrown back at him? That we don't know, but if, if looking at the other documents that we've got, we've got plans by Adam and Lord Digby has scribbled in on them, no door here, have a window please. <laughs> so, so I'm sure they did. In fact, every time Mr Brown came, they went on a ride round the park together, the family and Mr Brown. Would love to be in a fly on the wall of that coach because they were discussing all the schemes between them. Um, and yes, you're right, after he finished all his work here, he still visited once a year, every year, just to catch up with them, because he clearly got on with them, they had a common interest in gardening. We've come outside the castle, the sun is actually shining today, the daffodils are out, and stretching away into the slightly hazy distance are acres of smooth parkland, all looked after by a small team. We have a team of uh, three gardeners, uh, we've got Roy, Dave and Gavin, they're all RHS trained, um, and they manage this amazing capability ground landscape garden which goes as far as the eye can see. Um, if you notice, there are no straight lines. So Gavin, capability brown garden and you're looking after it? I am, yes. Yeah, It's uh, quite a, a privilege to be able to do that. One of his first gardens as well. So, you know, it's it's a full t yeah, hard work to, to keep it going. Uh, the massive landscape that we have, it's over 50 acres between three of us, but yeah. It's enjoyable, we love it. So looking around, it, all this was designed by Capability Brown. This, none of this is natural. He modified landscape. Of course things are natural, but it's all contrived. It is a conceal and reveal garden. You don't see it all at once. That's the whole point, it's the ooh and the ah. You come round a corner and your eyes are pulled to the distance. For instance, Pinford Bridge over there. Um, it's very, very cleverly done and it's a sort of way of gardening which has been copied over the centuries by the next generations of gardeners but he started it off and his legacy is huge and, and we and this was one of his first gardens yes. so he was trying his theories out here yeah i suppose we could say that um in um 2016 when they celebrated his life and works we were one of the ambassador gardens and we were terribly proud to be part of that um, campaign. Um, we took on a young gardener who had no reputation. Um, Henry Digby, um, he, we had an estate up in Coleshill and through his friends at Packham Hall met Capability Brown, saw what he'd done there and brought him down here to basically make the latest trendy garden. So he swept away the work of previous generation um, there was a parlour garden. If you look here onto the East Lawn over there, um, in Sir Walter Raleigh's time, that was a parlour garden. And he um, put in ha-has. He put in, I suppose most notably, the lake. He, he put in a 50-acre lake in a serpentine shape. He modified what was the uh, River Yeo. And it is now a ginormous expanse of water. 
and although it looks beautiful it had various functions it produced fish for the house it is now in the 21st century a, a reservoir for Wessex water it's a holding tank you could call it um, it was used for amenity in the in the winter people skated on it um, there used to be a sign in, in, in the estate office in, on Cheap Street saying the ice is holding skaters welcome <laughs> and we've got great pictures of an ox being roasted on the ice can you imagine how silly that would be now health and safety would have a freak so Gavin it's a obviously it's a year-round job for you yes it is yeah how do you cope with this landscape what do you what do you do do you know we ask ourselves that at times how do we manage but we just do we have you know monthly weekly uh, routines you know we we know exactly what needs to be done at any time of the year you know and we we just get on and get done it and get it done um at the moment we're gearing up for um the opening of the castle so um it's all hands on deck with the weeding um which is yeah that's you know yeah you know we do that constantly anyway but um we always up our game, especially for the opening of the castle. And yeah, mowing, which is, uh, but we, we need machinery to be able to do all the, the stuff that we do do. We couldn't do it just by ourselves. So we do rely heavily on machinery as well. What's your favorite part of the garden? Favorite part of the garden? Oh, that's a tricky one, because I do love it all, but I would probably say a maple glade. Um, it's just, it's a woodland walk and you know, and there's some interesting uh, Japanese maples in there, and we're starting to introduce um, a lot more um, different type of plants and um, more exotic but hardy plants just to complement the Japanese maples. So, yeah, that's probably my favourite area. It depends on the time of year. If you go around the whole of the castle now with all the bulbs and all the um, anemones, it looks amazing. So Yeah, the sun's just come out as we speak. Yeah. And it's beginning to feel spring-like. It f actually, feel, it does feel like spring. Um, it's a long time coming. It feels like it's been a long... I wouldn't say a cold winter, wet winter, which has been a problem because we've had a lot of walk waterlogging this year. And um, it, it does affect the plants, but they'll bounce back. Nothing stands still as styles change inside the house with each generation adding their layer to the history of the place. Outside, too, the garden evolves gently over time. Gavin Horniblow. Yeah, the garden does evolve. Um, as I say, it was a long time ago when he the initial design of it. We try and keep it in keeping with what he did, but we're introducing more um, exotic plants, I suppose, if you want to call them that. Um, plants that probably weren't available to him back then, but we have got them now, So, and we know how hardy they are. So we're trying to make it a, as a plantsman's garden, really, um, to encourage people to come and see unusual plants from far away. So what have you got? We've got a lot of plants that come from the Himalayas and China that probably weren't available back then. Um, things like uh, tetrapanics and sheffleras and um, ferns that, you know, the um, the tree ferns and things like that that they wouldn't have had back then. And so we're, we're introducing things like that now and so just some unusual plants and we get the seeds we're in a seed partnership with the RHS, and so we get some quite unusual seeds from them as well, uh, which we prop ourselves, so that's the kind of thing we're looking at. You said it was a very wet winter. Is, is climate change going to be an issue, do you think? Is that, I reckon does it give you any problems? I reckon it will. 
um, as if the the, we the weather stays like it does, uh, where it's constantly wet, um, it doesn't get cold enough to kill off any of the uh, the pests and diseases. Um, you would probably see more um, problems with uh, disease, i.e., fungus and stuff like that. Um, but we just keep mo you monitor it, and we see what happens. You know, when it does, we'll you know we'll deal with it as it happens. So yeah, it, it probably will affect us at some point. We love going on plant hunting expeditions. Um, this is a very personal garden, and uh, about three times a year we go off. We went to desert and... Desert to jungle in Taunton, which uh, they produce some really unusual plants. They're totally hardy in this country, but they look so tropical and exotic. But they're, you know, with a bit of uh, tender care over the winter, you know, the winters are getting milder anyway, so we can bring a lot more different plants into the garden now. As well, opposed to back then. When we're going on our shopping trips, we must always try and prevent ourselves from buying too many plants because getting in the car always proves a problem. Gavin's had some <laughs> spiky yeah, plants spiky stuck plants, up his yeah. nose. <laughs> that's to say for any gardener, though, isn't it? You always come back with more than you oh, yes. intended to. Yeah, you get carried away and you, you see, you, know, you may have a, a small plan of what we want and come away with a lot more than we, we bargained for, but uh, that's the fun of gardening. Do, do you resent the visitors coming? Are they a problem? No, I love the visitors. It's really nice. You know, we're showing off our work, you know, what we, we're capable of, of doing. To, we want the visitors to come and to see what we do, you know. It's not just for us. You, you get a, a lot of buzz from seeing the visitors and hearing their compliments of how great the garden looks. So, yeah, it's good to have the visitors and to show it off. I think a successful day for us if we overhear people saying love that I'm going to take it home and, and copy it if, if somebody does that I go away with a, a skip in my step I think you're listening to the Sherburn podcast you can download and enjoy all our previous episodes including our visit to Sherburn Abbey where Sir Walter Raleigh had his own favorite place for worship but let's go back inside the castle Jonathan Betts is an horologist who looked after the clocks at Greenwich and the National Maritime Museum for 35 years He's on a stepladder delving into the innards of a clock. This is what's known as a tavern clock, sometimes erroneously called an Act of Parliament clock. It's a large wall clock made in the uh, late 18th century, designed for taverns, for, um, for providing time for, for uh, the populace at, uh, at a time when not everyone could afford a watch. So it was uh, a way of distributing public time. And you've taken it apart. Yes, it, uh, it hasn't been working. Um, there have been various little problems with it, so it's, it's undergoing surgery at the moment. Its movements come out and come apart. Sort of, we call it kitchen table horology. We, we <laughs> do it on site. Um, but it's actually a very good way to deal with it because it, uh, it um, enables you to, um, to actually do the job uh, there and then, and it makes sure that the minimum amount of uh, restoration work takes place because we believe these days in conserving rather than restoring where possible. And you say it's not working now, but you're confident you, you'll get it working? Yes, there, are various, uh, there were various problems which we've managed to get round. Um, there are certain parts which, which just needed adjusting and um, hopefully now it will be uh, running reliably by the end of the day, all being well. What's the oldest clock here? The oldest clock? is i would guess is it the um the uh, table clock at um 
Of course, there's the long case lock, isn't there? Yes, yes, from the, yeah, the 1680s, 1690s, there's a very fine long case lock in a marquetry case, I think, isn't it? Yeah, by Williamson of London, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, um, so the oldest is 340 years old. And still working? Still working well. English long case locks uh, at that period were built to last, and uh, they can still do good service and keep good time. Much like horologists. <laughs> we try, we try. Meanwhile, the work of archivist Anne Smith goes on, with documents and records spanning 400 years to be preserved and catalogued. We've got um, Capability Brown's receipts and um, his plans for the work that he did here in the 1750s and 1760s when he put in the lake. Um, and then we've got drawings for buildings by Adam that he put in things here. And right up to the present century, um, well, last century, when we had um, troops were in the castle. The First World War, this was a, a Red Cross VAD hospital. The Second World War, it was occupied by both our troops, the commandos, and then by American servicemen who were training for D-Day, the Normandy landings. Mariah says much of what the commandos got up to on the estate is still secret. But one famous officer posted to Sherburne in the war left a record of his off-duty activities. The commandos were based here in the early part of the war and this is still top secret and despite my huge efforts, it's all redacted and we can't get much information. However, we know quite a lot thanks to Evelyn Waugh, um, you know, the great author. He was a commando and he was based in Sherburne, and he wrote loads of letters and journals. And from, from his um, descriptions, we can learn a bit about life in the castle. There was a lot of drinking that went on. I think it, even in war was here, I imagine there was. I think he had a slight... No, he definitely had a cordial problem. Um, he describes how before dinner he had a, a bottle of Dow's Port 1908, and then after dinner he had a bottle of Dow's Port 1927. I don't... And then he had to write up a um, military sort of report and he described his pen and the paper being like a Ouija board. I thought that was absolutely hysterical. Um, and he also describes my husband's grandmother, Gwendolyn, as a sad old bitch, <laughs> which I think we have to find amusing. She was also, uh, we're hoping it's because she was obsessed with Keys hound dogs, these are Dutch barge dogs, and she brought them over from Holland and she became one of the key breeders. The commandos moved out and the Americans moved in. Sherburne experienced the war firsthand during the Battle of Britain in 1940 when German bombs fell on the town, some landing in the castle grounds. But then an accident brought death again, this time to the castle during the preparations for D-Day. Basically a two and a half tonne truck was loaded up with mines for an exercise um, and it basically blew up. Um, and we have first-hand accounts of the devastation. Um, and if you go to the abbey and where the um, war, war memorial is, you'll see a brass plaque naming all the poor people that died. We get lots of, actually, Americans who come back and their families to the castle to um, find out where their ancestors were based. There's a great connection. And the castle is connected to history. We've got over 400 years of collections. Each family member has added something. So we've got 
furniture, Ensign Mayhew to IKEA is what I say. <laughs> <laughs> we've got, we've got modern silver that we bought, 21st century silver, and we've got 16th century silver. We've got examples throughout the ages. We've got China throughout the ages. Certain people were enjoyed collecting Chinese and Japanese um, ceramics, and we have a tremendous collection of that. It's a hodgepodge. It's uh, a complete model of furniture and artefacts, an eclectic collection, which makes it interesting. Are you still researching them? Do you still find out facts about them? Oh, now? all the time. And we had a... I, I love going round with visitors because they always come with a different pair of glasses on. I had a, a friend who was um, an expert in wallpaper. I knew nothing about wallpaper. We had somebody else who was interested in lampshades. Lampshades have nearly, never really entered my life. I never really noticed them. Um, somebody else noticed my John Lewis cushions. So we had a big laugh about those. <laughs> you know, It's not like the National Trust. It's not sterile. You will find our dog wandering around. But as with all of us, how the rest of 2020 will unfold and the immediate future for Sherburn Castle is unclear. Most of our visitors who come through groups are generally retired and in that sort of vulnerable category. And I, and I do predict that we will have lots of cancellations. It's going to be a tough trading year. But watch this space, watch our website, watch social media. My thanks to Mariah Wingfield-Digby and the staff at Sherburn Castle. Watch out too for the next episode of the podcast. The Sherburn Podcast is a Red Mike production for Brookmore Media.